Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden as we continue journeying through the Torah this year. Uh, our second week in the book of Leviticus, Sefer Vayikra, um, but in many ways, very similar theme to uh, last week's opening session in Leviticus uh, because Leviticus itself does deal a lot with sacrifices and the priesthood and the role of the priest and so forth. Uh, but as we did last week, we'll kind of build on that. We'll continue to touch base with the idea of our relationship with the sacrifices, specifically through prayer. Uh, and we'll also uh, kind of hammer home one more time. Uh, since the name of the portion we'll be discussing this week, Zav, comes from uh, the root for mitzvah, uh, our commandment, uh, just to remind ourselves what is the commandment, what is our relationship to the commandment, how should we view ourselves and what's happening when we are observing, are fulfilling, are obeying, are doing a commandment. Uh, so we'll spend some time in that, and then as has been our uh, custom for most of the weeks, we'll spend some time kind of being mindful of it, trying to take what's in there and personalize it, uh, much like we did with an Exodus, the tabernacle, and kind of building that tabernacle within. So in Leviticus, much of what we'll be doing is trying to awaken the priest within us, uh, that archetypal, again, approach to the Torah, uh, and so the book of Leviticus basically being the manual for the priests. Uh, what, what is that saying to the priest that dwells within us? So it's kind of where we are headed. One quick uh, announcement. This will be uh, the last class of Echoes of Eden uh, until three weeks from today. So the next two weeks, uh, we will not have class. I'll try to remember also to send out an email to that effect. And if you know others that maybe come to class uh, that aren't here this evening, uh, if you could get the word out to them, and hopefully they're on the email list as well. Uh, just with Holy Week coming up, uh, Passover coming up, uh, my own schedule and so forth. Uh, the next two Mondays we will not have class, uh, but we will pick it up after that, uh, right in line with where uh, we will join in the times and where the lectionary uh, resumes. And I'll try to get email reminders not only about uh, the next two classes or the next two weeks not having classes, but where we would pick up as well and maybe give some links to where you can listen to classes in the meantime in between so that you're still kind of reading through Leviticus and keeping up with the times. All right, so let's uh, get started with the blessing before the study of Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Medech HaOelam Asher Kiddishanu Baumitzvata Vesivanu Leesok Bidivrei Torah Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. All right, so this week's portion is known as Zav. Zav means to command or commandment. Uh, it's coming from the root to command, so you can think of it just as command. Uh, in English, it covers uh, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, and goes through the end of chapter 8. Uh, the, for a little while, the versification in the Hebrew Bible is a little different. So if you're following along in the Hebrew Bible or English translations such as the Tree of Life version that follows the chapter and versifications of the Hebrew Bible, it would begin in chapter 6, verse 1. 
and would cover all of chapters 6, 7, and 8, and then everything gets linked back up nice and sound. Uh, but in English, it would be chapter 6, verse 8, uh, through the end of chapter uh, 8. Uh, makes up the 25th portion of the Torah, known as Zav the second in the book of Leviticus. So what's going on in Zav? Uh, again, as I said, the name means command. It shares the root with mitzvah, which means or gets translated as commandment. And uh, the word command or zav is found in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, um, is where the word is found, where God instructs Moses to command, to zav Aaron and his son, regarding their duties, as well as, in many ways, their rights and responsibilities as kohanim, as priests, uh, who offer the korbanot, the sacrifices, the offerings in the tabernacle. Uh, the portion goes on to describe the fire on the altar is to be kept burning at all times. Uh, it's a concept we've already encountered a couple of times in our Torah studies. Uh, so therefore, you kind of know that's an important concept. When we come to being mindful a little bit later on, we will come back to that whole idea that the, the, the priest is to keep the fire going all the time, 24-7. And so if we're going to speak to that priest within us, then what is that priest, what is, what is that role that we have to keep that fire alive? Uh, in the fire, on the altar, are burned the holy consumed ascending offering known as the Ola offering that we talked about last week when Leviticus introduced those chief types of sacrifices. The Ola, O-L-A-H, offering is often translated in your English Bibles as the burnt offering, but it literally means the ascending offering because it was to be completely consumed and all of it, all you think about its smells and its uh, Colors, everything was to completely ascend up to, uh, to the, the next realm, if you will. And so um, there it would be consumed in that fire. Also on that fire, the veins of fat for the peace offering. Uh, perhaps at some point in Leviticus, we'll talk about why the fat. What's the fat represent? We won't get there this evening, but we may soon enough. But the fat from the peace, the sin, and the guilt offerings, as well as what is called the handful, uh, separated from the meal offerings. The priests were to, as the Torah describes in this week's portion, when it talks about their rites, uh, much of the sacrificial system served a very practical function. It's how the priest ate, quite literally, right? Uh, they were to consume the meat of the sin and the guilt offerings, they and their families. So it was part of their paycheck, if you will, uh, as well as the remainder of the meal offering, other than when they took the handful, placed it on the fire that consumed it. Uh, the rest of it was to go to the priest and to the priest's family, from which they could make things like bread and other foods for their family. The peace offering, the shalomim offering, uh, was to be eaten by the one who brought it, 
uh, except for the specified portions that were given to the priests and the portion that was to ascend to God. And so it kind of became a meal that was shared between the individual or individuals who brought it, the priests, and God himself, that all three consumed that offering. And the meat of the offering was to be eaten by uh, the priests when they were in a pure state, uh, in their designated place, and within a specified time, uh, which, again, we won't get into this evening, but does somewhere later down the road we'll talk about it, um, uh, because it comes into play in the Gospels, uh, that after three days, something is considered rancid and beyond uh, a, a pure condition and so forth. Um, Aaron and his sons remain within the tabernacle compound after all of these instructions for seven days, during which Moses initiates or ordains them into their roles as priests. So that's kind of what happens in the portion this week. Uh, but I want to talk now about mitzvot. Uh, mitzvot is the plural of the Hebrew word mitzvah, uh, which gets translated as commandment. And it is, again, shares the same root as this week's portion, zav, to command. And I want to first make sure we truly understand what a commandment is in our proper way to relate to it, because I really think in the church, a lot of Christians don't know what commandments are. Uh, they think they know what they are, but they don't really know what they are. They don't really know how to relate to them. Or they even teach crazy things like they really are no longer binding to us or they really are no longer that important to us or in many ways they've been removed from us. And all of that comes from a misunderstanding at a very base level of what a commandment is. Um, and so I want to talk about that as well as uh, the connections to the five levels of the soul. Uh, and that is a concept in if we want to have our mindset to be like a first century Galilean, Hebraic, Eastern understanding of the spiritual makeup of the human being, uh, that we have a body and we have a soul, and that soul, that kind of invisible me that really makes up me, uh, has seemed to have five levels. It's not as complicated as deep or spooky as it sounds at first uh, Paul likes to talk about three of them quite a bit when he speaks of body soul and mind in the New Testament uh, that's coming from this he's just speaking about the bottom three of the five because the upper two are often kind of seen as unattainable or unreachable uh, but the bottom three are always to be worked on and so they get translated from the Hebrew into Greek and into English as body, soul, and mind, or body, soul, and spirit, different ways it gets translated. But you've heard of the three parts, uh, so to speak, from the Apostle Paul. Paul is just pulling that from his Jewish context. Uh, really, those levels of the soul, as we're going to see, are kind of where we see the Torah was very much ahead of its time, where psychology for us is a relatively 
new science and a new endeavor on the scene. Uh, there is psychology all throughout the Torah. Uh, and so the five levels of the soul are kind of really speaking to five aspects of our being, uh, such as the physical, uh, the emotional, the intellectual, and so forth. And so um, the commandments, the mitzvah, uh, the things that we've been zavved, uh, that they connect our soul. They connect our soul not only to God, but they connect our soul in a lot of other realms. And so I want to spend some time thinking about that. So when we look at the opening verse uh, of the portion, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, command. And that's where you get the word Zav in Hebrew, the name of the portion this week. Command Aaron and his sons. And then it goes on with what you are to command them. So the name of the portion Zav, as I said, means command. The Almighty here is telling Moses to command Aaron regarding the sacrificial offerings. Rashi comments in the Kumash that the word Zav has the language of um, alacrity, um, that doing the mitzvah with the full force of one's being, like that's kind of embedded in this root of zav, that it, it, it involves the whole being, which is why I want to connect it to the five levels of the soul. Uh, and it implies that Aaron should then instruct his children now, and into the future with the implication that they would then pass it on from one generation to the next. So when we think about Zav, the name of this week's portion, command, right? Well, command and commandment is a really big word, and it's a really big concept throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Torah. Uh, And so I want to make sure we get it clear. The usual translation for the word mitzvah, M-I-T-Z-V-A-H, mitzvah, really the same root as zav, just a different part of speech. The real meaning of that root is not commandment. It is not commandment. It is actually connection. It is connection. Uh, So, just already begin to think about how that could change your perspective of what these are. If you think about them not as commandments, but as connections, right? One sounds a whole lot more inviting, does it not, right? One has the image of an almighty commanding you to do something. And in our Western culture, what is usually our response to anybody? Anybody, including God, having the chutzpah to dare tell me what I should do. What is our knee-jerk reaction? Who are you, right? Why are you, who do you think you are telling me what I should do? It's just ingrained in us, right? It's the Hellenistic Western culture of the individual, all right? But instead of hearing commandment, you hear God has given you opportunities 
to connect not only to him and to the mysteries of the universe, but to connect to yourself and your own identity and who you are and to connect to other people, to connect to your emotions, to connect to your intellect, to connect to um, what's beyond you, to connect to the meta, right? That you have these opportunities to connect. Well, that, that, that hits a little bit differently, doesn't it? And so when we think about a mitzvah, a command, or a commandment, it's like the ladder of Jacob's dream. It has the power to connect heaven and earth. It has the power to connect the physical and the spiritual. It has the power to connect the body and the mind. It has the power to connect the infinite and the finite. And this awareness enriches the performance of mitzvot, the plural of mitzvah, it enhances our desire to do them almost immediately and immeasurably. This definition, as I've already kind of spoken about, is especially important for those of us who are raised in a, uh, a more secular atmosphere where the mere concept of being told what to do runs against the superficial concept of freedom. I am free. I'm free to make my own choices. I'm free to make my own decisions. Being free to most people in a modern context means you're able to call your own shots, to do whatever one wants. The mere mention of a commandment seems to go against the high value we have on autonomy and independence. But understanding a mitzvah as an opportunity to connect to God may strike a more receptive chord for those not raised in an atmosphere where mitzvot, our commandments, are encouraged, are regularly observed. So, this is why when you read, for instance, in the Psalms, and you read King David saying things like, I love the law of the Lord. Oh Lord, your commandments I love with all my heart. Now, for many of us raised in a church environment, we're taught to things like the law is bad, the law is negative, the law only and always condemns. And yet here we have David going, I love it. I can't get enough of it, right? And you're like, how in the world can David be saying that? Well, it's because often we have the incorrect understanding of commandment and law, or we don't have the full picture. But if we understand it now with David saying, I delight in connecting to you. I delight when you tell me this is a portal to experience you. And I go down that portal and I, I see you in a way I've never seen before. I'm in love with the fact that I can now control my emotions better or that I have a, a better understanding of the bigger picture and how the world works. That's what David is saying that he loves. David is saying he loves connection. He loves being connected to his creator. And so when we understand performing a mitzvah, which we might in English say meaning observing a commandment, obeying a, a commandment, it has a connective power on many different levels. And now I kind of want to just construct a really quick ladder of the way it can connect on five rungs of that ladder uh, explaining the connecting power that a mitzvah has to different aspects of our being, different aspects of our soul. 
and so the lowest rung on the ladder of how a mitzvot, or how a mitzvah, how a zav, how a commandment can connect is with our bodies. This is known as the nephesh in Hebrew. It's the lowest level of the soul. It's the, the physical level. It's an important level, right? Uh, it's the part of you that has competition, which isn't all bad. That's, how, that's what gets you up in the morning. That's what motivates you to study or go for the promotion or feed your family. It, it's what propels you to defend yourself or to defend your family. It's, but it's very physical. It's purely physical and material. That level of the soul is called the nephesh or the animal soul. Uh, it's bound up with the body. It's bound up with material. It's bound up with the flesh. But when it is directed towards higher pursuits, its raw energy has great spiritual potential. Performing a mitzvah can connect the body and nephesh to the higher levels of the soul and to God and entails ongoing discipline and training. And so there's certain commandments that if you think about it in the terms of what is the best way for one to, to lose weight and to regain some of their health, right? The best way is to have some discipline and, and discipline the body, discipline uh, the appetite, discipline and have restriction and so forth. There are certain commandments that have that as its main connection, that it's to connect us with our body, it's to help curb it and discipline it and rein it in or to direct it in a more holy way. Um, perhaps sometimes some of our physical desires, if they're left unchecked, take us down negative roads, but they don't have to. That same energy can take us down a good road, a positive road in which we grow closer to the world around us, closer to our neighbor, closer to our God. Performing uh, certain commandments, mitzvah, uh, demand not just body and soul co cooperation, but the subservience of the basic desires and urges of the body. And so you begin to learn how to do that. Yet these same desires are not meant to be extinguished. It's often how they're taught, right? You just got to crush them. But that's not necessarily the case. It's more that they need to be redirected so they can find full release and expression for their designed purpose. Virtually all of the commandments include some kind of physical action, whether a use of a physical object or speech. And in this sense, the mitzvah, the command, the zav, connects our soul to our bodies and the physical world in which we live. And so there's a, a very basic level of just the doing, just the physical doing of it right whether that's the physical taking care of or your your next door neighbor is an 85 year old widow with a walker and we just had 12 inches of snow right it's a mitzvah it's a good thing it's a connection if you shovel her driveway and her sidewalks and so forth for her but guess what you're going to be, it's pretty much an all-physical kind of thing, right? But by the physical action and the physical labor and the physical discipline, you are actually connecting on a deeper level with God and with the love of neighbor. What commandment is it? To love your neighbor as yourself, 
right? But it's going to involve uh, blisters, maybe, if you don't wear your gloves. It's going to involve sweat. It's going to involve a lot of work. So there's that physical component. There's literally a, a physical connection with the mitzvah or a zav, a commandment. Um, the next level of the soul is known as the ruach, the ruach. Uh, this relates to the emotional aspects of your personality. Uh, commandments are not meant to be cold. They're not meant to be calculated actions divorced from our feelings and our sensitivities. That is, they're not just meant to be boxes that we check. On the contrary, a commandment, a mitzvah, a connection brings us into contact with deep emotions. We're meant to feel deeply about the commandments we do, and they are also designed, if we're doing them from a, a place of love of God and love of neighbor, they're often designed to awaken the full gamut of emotions within us, including devotion, uh, emotions like devotion and love, compassion, awe, gratefulness. All of these emotions can not only be stirred up in us, but they can be cultivated and they can be experienced in a very positive way by the observance of a commandment, a zav, a connection. That's one of the connections it'll make. It allows you to connect to your emotions. So how do you learn to have compassion? By doing acts of compassion. And then you arouse compassion within you. Similar to the nephish, which needs constant refining, our emotions are also in need of continual tempering and improvement and checking. Uh, so uh, an emotion that may get the better of us sometimes, like anger, right? Doing certain connections help us to bring forth emotions that will counteract anger, as well as there are physical actions that can help counteract things like anger or the negative physical effects that anger has on our body. The next level of the soul is known as the neshama, uh, the intellectual, and it's considered in many ways like the seat of the intellect. The written Torah provides sometimes very few explanations to the exact deeper meanings and reasons behind a given connection, behind a given mitzvah or commandment. It was left to us to study, to meditate upon, to delve into the scriptures in order to extract the nearly infinite depths of meaning contained in each connection that God gives to us. Although we ultimately do the mitzvah, the commandment, the connection, because we were, quite honestly, commanded to do it, still we use our intellectual powers to unlock the abstract and concrete reasons and effects as best we can. In fact, learning the scriptures, learning the word of God, learning the way and the will of God is itself a connection, is itself a mitzvah, one that is compared to all the others combined. Nothing sharpens, elevates, and clarifies the intellect so much as the actual study of the word of God and holy scripture. And yet its ultimate purpose is to apply that knowledge to the actual carrying out of the commandment. And so there's an intellectual component when we think about 
Why am I doing this? What is this really for? What is this achieving on a deeper level? What are all the connections that are being made? How does this connect with other commandments or connections? How does this fit into the life of God? Right? It begins to stimulate our intellect. And then the fourth level of the soul turned, termed kaya, uh, kind of means the living one is what kaya means. It comes from the Hebrew word kai to mean life. But here it's also the superconscious, uh, the, you know, the, the subconscious level, the meta level, the metaphysical level, the kind of beyond this world level. So if you want to think about it in terms of like the Christian church, why do so many Christian churches on some kind of regular basis, regular can be defined differently, but still on a regular basis, why do they observe the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist? You fill in the name for it for your specific uh, sway. But why do they regularly do this? Well, on one level, right, there's the, Jesus says what? Do this. Do this. But we also realize, okay, so do this. That's a commandment. Oh, oh, wait, I thought Jesus was anti-commandment. But yet one of the nearest and dearest things to us, something that we even call a means of grace, the means of grace only exists because we're told to do it. So you see how sometimes law and gospel don't quite neatly divide as much as we think they do. So we do it because we're told to do it, but then think about it. There's a physical component to it, right? We taste something, we ingest something, we drink something, we can taste it, smell it, see it, right? It provides something to the physical experience. It also can be quite emotional, can it not? Can it not stir emotion when we realize? And then the intellect, when we begin to contemplate forgiveness, or when we begin to contemplate what brought about the work of the body and blood of the Messiah, what that was for, what he endured to bring these gifts to us, right? It can stir emotions to know I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm restored. It can stir the intellect to know and to begin to contemplate, now what does this mean for me as I leave this building redeemed, forgiven, and restored? How is that going to affect my relationships tomorrow at work? How is that going to affect how I'm going to treat my spouse at lunch? How is that going to affect how I'm going to speak to my children tonight before they go to bed, right? You begin to see all of this. And then even on a metaphysical level, on a level of kaya, on a level of life, we believe that in that meal, heaven and earth are coming together, that they're kissing, that they're uniting, and that something that we cannot explain rationally is actually happening. That we're in the very real presence of our Creator. That we're in the very real presence of our Redeemer. That we are in the very real presence having a meal with the architect of the universe. That's very meta, but we believe it, right? And then it'll even hit into the fifth level that we'll talk about with unity, that it unifies us. That's why it's called communion. 
communion, union with one another is what that means in Latin. We unite with our God. We unite with one another at the table. And so all comes from one commandment, do this. And yet you see all of the amazing connections that come from it. And so then we don't have to get chafed because Jesus told us to do something and we don't have to think about it as just a box check but instead, look at all the opportunity. Look at all of, then you can rejoice with King David and say, I love your commandments. I love your connections. And so that's kind of connecting on the, the Kaya level. It's a, a kind of a, an, an awakening of the soul to its deepest Roots, awakening the hidden recesses of our soul and its desires, leading you into the fifth level, known as yakida, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word that means oneness. So this is a, a union, a communion, if you will, with the divine uh, that connects us to God. It is at this level where we experience a mitzvah, a zav, a commandment, a connection as a reflection of God's will and his goodness. Uh, and that it's coming alive in us. In fact, the last two letters of the word mitzvah are identical to the last two letter of God, letters of God's essential four-letter name, showing that the mitzvah is ultimately the vessel for experiencing God. So, all of this is to say that when we perform a mitzvah, when we obey a commandment, we have the opportunity to connect to God at these five levels. Far more than just mere obedience, far more than someone big, bad, and with a white beard in the sky being the boss of me, trying to tell me how to live my life, posing his will upon me, it allows us instead to connect to God, to one another, and to ourselves physically, emotionally, intellectually, joyfully, and feel a unity, a oneness with God and those around us. So on your sheet, I kind of gave you a kind of the little chart uh, for that with Nefesh being at the bottom. That's the, the bottom level, uh, the physical vitality. But a, a mitzvah, a commandment, incorporates all five of those. All of them incorporate that. They just, certain ones may emphasize one more than the other or work on one more than the other, but they all lead to one another. They all kind of work together. All right? Sacrifices through the prism of prayer. So last week we started this concept, and I just want to follow through with it. Uh, because last week in the portion of Ayikra, it spent a great deal of time talking about the types of sacrifices and what they were and so forth. And it kind of does it again this week in one fashion or another. And so, again, reading this thousands of years after it was written, when there is no more tabernacle, when there is no more temple, when there is no more sacrifices, and we're not concerned about it, and we may be tempted again to think, why should we read this portion of Scripture? How can this relate to us? Uh, last week we began introducing the idea that the sacrifices were a spiritual technology system. 
and like any technology, just like, for instance, uh, the projector up there, which is in horrible shape and isn't bright enough and needs to be replaced, well, we're going to replace it, when it gets replaced, with another projector, with essentially the same technology but yet not the same technology like it'll have it can be led and it can have different chips and different things going but in the end it's all about taking an image that's on the screen and throwing it up here for all to see in a clear way the sacrificial system was one such way to deliver spiritual technology to the people but it's not the only system that can deliver that technology there are other ways you can get an image up there without a projector. I could buy a 100-inch screen, uh, you know, TV screen monitor and throw it that way and there not be a projector in the building. But yet the same spiritual technological principle of I want to take what's on my computer when I'm typing up my PowerPoint and I want people to see it big and bold is there. God always works with people where they're at and what they're accustomed to. The temple, when it was built, you know what? If you study other cultures, Solomon's temple, oh my goodness, it looked so much just like all the other temples other people had, right? It was a little different. It had its own twist, right? God put his little things in there to make sure you knew this wasn't a Canaanite temple, but it looked a lot like a Canaanite temple. All right, and it looked a lot like some other temples. Well, of course it did, right? Of course it did. Just like a lot of cathedrals built in, you know, the Middle Ages, they kind of look alike, don't they? They kind of have a lot of the same influences. Well, of course it did, right? That's not unusual. So the sacrificial system is something that would have spoken very well to the people way back then that does not speak so well to us anymore. But the worst thing you can do when you study anything historically or anything from a uh, perspective of anthropology uh, is to judge a culture with your culture standards. That's, that's, that's a horrible thing to do. And it's a very unfair thing to do. So instead, what we want to look at and what we began doing last week was remember the question, not asking, what were they thinking? bringing in a goat and slitting his throat and thinking their sins are forgiven. What were they thinking? Well, actually, they weren't thinking that. They did not think the, the blood of that goat forgave their sins. They didn't think that at all. That's what you have decided from your culture's perspective that they meant, and it fits a nice narrative for you to make your religion look really superior. right? That's not what they thought. They, they always knew their sins were forgiven only by God's grace alone, through the process of repentance and turning to God and seeking forgiveness from God and God's grace alone. They've always known that. They've never not known that. And that's the technology underpinning the sacrificial system in many ways. And that system spoke to them. For them, when they saw the blood, when they had to physically grab an animal and lay hands on it and watch the life leave it and so forth, it was a very vivid reminder to enable them in their process of repentance. But they knew it wasn't taking their place. We put that on them. They had, knew it was, still had to be their repentance 
and they're coming before a God, and they're beseeching God's mercy and God's grace. And remember, the sacrifices were korban. They brought you near to God. Well, there are lots of other things and ways that you are brought near to God. So last week we began exploring that one of those that's still very much relevant for us is prayer, is prayer. And I want to continue that theme, and I want to show you that that theme is even in the Old Testament itself. And again, to show you what did they think they were thinking. What were they thinking was happening when they went into the tabernacle and did this? Not what do we think they were thinking. What did they actually think was happening? Let's look at it from and give them the benefit of the doubt of their culture and not superimpose where we're at and judge them from that perspective. So Zav, like much of Leviticus, addresses the central role of sacrifices, including animal sacrifice, but hopefully you've also been paying attention and you realize, wow, a good chunk of these aren't animal sacrifices. And oh my goodness, a vast majority of them don't involve blood at all. Oh my goodness, and many of them, in fact, most of them, have nothing to do with atonement whatsoever or forgiveness of sins whatsoever. Did you realize that over 80% of them don't deal with atonement and getting your sins forgiven? But we're told, we're usually given the impression that that's all that was about. 20% of the time, that's what that was about. 20% of the time. Okay, so what was going on in the tabernacle? What did they think was going on? Clearly, the sacrifices were fundamental to both the private and the communal services performed in the tabernacle. For non-observant Jews possessing little knowledge of Jewish tradition or history, the practice of sacrifices can be disconcerting at best. Lacking the philosophical and psychological rationale provided by the tradition, it can be very easy to view the Levitical system as primitive, as barbaric, as completely lacking in any contemporary relevance whatsoever. Therefore, it's crucial to place this practice in its historical context. Explain its deeper meaning. What's the operating system trying to achieve in the software of the tabernacle? And then demonstrate how that can be translated into contemporary reality. One of the cardinal principles informing any serious and objective study in the field of anthropology, history, or comparative religion is not to judge a different culture, a different religion, or a different error by one's own contemporary standards. It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. Sometimes you've got to have an accountability partner to remind you that you're doing it. But doing so destroys any semblance of objectivity and prevents any meaningful understanding of the subject under investigation. Therefore, it is essential not to judge the tabernacle service by today's standards, but rather try and understand the underlying principles, the spiritual technology. What did they think was happening? And apply that and compare it to spiritual life today and find out that there actually is a connection and therefore we can still learn and even still sacrifice 
Because remember, a sacrifice doesn't mean blood and guts. Sacrifice in Hebrew comes from korban, which means what? To draw near, to be brought near. So Paul, for instance, says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Anybody here think he means put yourself on an altar and slit yourself? Nobody believes that. What he means now that you know what korban in Hebrew means, it's quite simple and it's quite beautiful. Present your bodies the way you live your life as a way that would draw not only you close to God, but would draw others close to God. Hmm. You see, sacrifice doesn't always mean blood and guts. So what was the principle of the korban for each of those Burn offering, Thanksgiving offering, peace offering, meal offering, the guilt offerings. What, what, what was going on underneath? We can find connection to that very much in our life today. So I want to just give you a few verses. Well, one, one more than a few, perhaps. A few verses. Um, these aren't exhaustive, but it's enough to wet your whistle. It's enough to make you aware of it. And if you're so inclined, it's enough to send you off on your own to find the many, many more references. There is a connection of sacrifice to prayer and the sacrificial system to prayer, that the two share the same spiritual technology. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Remember, incense is part of the whole tabernacle system. It's part of that and the lifting of my hands, my prayer, as the evening sacrifice. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's the key to every sacrifice. That's part of what they thought was happening there. They knew they had to come with a broken spirit. If they didn't come with a broken spirit, it doesn't matter how many bulls and goats and rams that they slaughtered. It was useless. That's not what God was wanting. That was the system that enabled the broken spirit. It's a different system. We don't relate to that system anymore. And that's okay. We live thousands of years later with lots of different world experiences and a completely different world in which we live in. It doesn't mean the system didn't work back then. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise repentance, prayer. Ezra chapter 9, verse 5. So Solomon's temple is destroyed. Babylonians take all the Israelites out of the land of Israel, take them out of Jerusalem. They're not allowed in Judah. Temples destroyed. But Cyrus, the Persian, comes, overtakes Babylon. Seventy years pass, and Cyrus says, Jewish people, you can go back to your homeland. In fact, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you protection. It's going to be a government-sponsored program. Persia is going to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, including your temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the leaders. Ezra's the priest and the scribe, and Nehemiah's kind of the, the guy that gets all the, uh, the, the ordinances and all of the permits from the city. He's the, 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 you know, the contractor. And before Ezra gets the temple rebuilt, you see 
what Ezra was doing. They, they couldn't have sacrifices because the temple wasn't rebuilt. There wasn't the altar. The, the, the technology, the center wasn't there. So what does Ezra do? All the times there were supposed to be sacrifices in the book of Ezra, we see that he prays. You see it here. At the evening sacrifice, he says, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. When do you fast and tear your garment in the Bible? When you're in repentance. So again, repentance. The actual repentant nature of the human being is the most important part of the sacrificial system. So he's in this place of repentance, and he says, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when I would, if the temple were standing, be offering a sacrifice, but there isn't a temple here, so I can't get the animal, and I can't offer the animal, so what am I going to do? Fall upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. I'm going to pray at the time of the evening sacrifice, and it's counted as if the sacrifice had happened. Prayer is the same technology. You also see this in the book of Hosea. Take with you words and return. The Hebrew word for return is shuv, which is where we get teshuva, which is repentance. Take with you words and repent. Return to the Lord and say to him, take away all my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls, right? Sacrifice, but how? With our lips. Prayer. Prayer has the same technology as the sacrifices. So now when we study what these sacrifices mean, what the Ola offering really is, it informs what our prayer life should look like, including even in a liturgical way how often we should pray, when we should pray, and what should be the content of our prayer because it has within it the sacrificial system. Because prayer is a korbanot. It's a korban. It is a way to be drawn near to God. That makes it a sacrifice. That's just a handful of samplings. They're all throughout the Old Testament. All right? The elevation. So now I want to talk about a handful of the offerings and how it informs our prayer life. So the elevation offering, the ola, O-L-A-H, often translated as the burnt offering, is the very paradigm for prayer as this was the offering where everything that was offered was completely consumed on the altar. So prayer, in order for it to be meaningful and effective, requires intense focus. It involves the giving of our whole self as much as we can, right? Because that's what the Ola offering was, that when they came into the tabernacle to present an Ola offering, what did they think they were doing? What they thought they were doing was completely giving themselves to God, every bit of it. They weren't holding back, well, you know, I do work this certain job and it does require me to behave a certain way and it's not really in line with the way of God, but it's what I got to do to keep my job. So that part I'm going to keep compartmentalized over here. And yeah, when I'm at church or when I'm serving on church council at the meetings, I won't use this kind of language for sure. But when I'm out with my boys, yeah, I let it fly, right? And so I'm going to compartmentalize that. I'm not going to quite give that portion over to God either. Oh, and you know, I have this little habit over here I don't really want to let that go either but I do love God and all of that that's not Ola that's not 
giving it all over, placing it on the altar, and letting it be consumed by God. This is why in the book of James, he says the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man, right? It's effectual. It, it works. It connects. It draws you near, right? The effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man. And so while individuals brought the ola, or the burnt offering, for several reasons, the common denominator among these reasons was voluntarily. They didn't do it because they had to do it. They didn't do it because they were checking a box. It was the voluntary offering of one's nature and laying it all before God. Symbolically, or on a technology level, the burnt offering represents the human desire to advance spiritually or to repair improper thoughts and actions. The burnt offering represents the free choice that all spiritual ascension requires. The fire on the altar and the sacrificial service emphasizes the passion, the commitment, the enthusiasm human beings are to bring in their service to God and in their prayer life. Your prayer life is to be passionate. It is to be consuming. The guilt offering, the sin offering, also known as the ashma or the chatat, as we talked about last week, resonates uh, powerfully, both as rituals performed during the tabernacle period, as well as in their kind of transmuted contemporary form uh, in prayer. The tabernacle, in the tabernacle, the sacrificial service was specifically tailored. So this is what you need to know in their culture, not our culture. I mean, I can even think about one of the ways to just try to understand the difference in culture is I even think about it in my own lifetime, the difference in culture of coaching. When I was young, good coaches were known for being hard. Like, if you didn't listen, you ran laps. If you ran the wrong play, you did extra push-ups. If you misbehaved or represented the school or your team in a negative way outside of the sporting event, you either sat out a game or you might be kicked off the team. And coaches would yell and coaches would get in the face of their players and they would go to town, right? And I think Bobby Knight. Indiana University, right? That this was the coach. Well, try coaching that way today, folks. It's not going to motivate little Johnny. If I get in little Johnny's face, if I throw the chair down from the side of the basketball court and I run over and get in little Johnny's face and tell him to go sit at the end of that bench, if his mom doesn't come off the bench to beat me up, right, He's just going to burst in tears and fall on the floor. I haven't motivated. Therefore, the old technology of Bobby Knight doesn't work. But what I want is the same result. I want motivation of my player. I want my player to respect me. I want my player to respect the team. I want my player to perform. I want my player to understand he works in a team and all that. I want the same result. But i got to use a different system to get that result. Thousands and thousands of years ago, when people of God needed to go through the repentance process, 
This system was the best that there was. This system worked like a charm. And it worked very effectively for a very, very long time. For a very long time. Just like Bobby Knight won national championships. And he won, you know, Big Ten championships. And he motivated lots of players. And professional players owe their career to him. It wouldn't work today. It would not work today. And so the same kind of thing. For them, the goal was this was aiding them in drawing close to God and bringing about repentance. And not just repentance for past deeds or mistakes, but like this returning to God, like this recommitment, this desire to grow spiritually, to bond with God, to bond with the community, to restore things, to make things right. This system was to aid them in that process. And the priest would guide the penitent or the individual through the mental and emotional steps needed to complete that process. And the sacrifice would serve as a vivid enactment, if you will, of what could have been the consequences of one's actions or what could have been or what should have been or what might have been. It was a way for them to see and understand the way things worked. So laying one's hand on the animal and confessing one's sin and watching the animal being slaughtered and offered up in place of oneself for them, was a dramatic, cathartic moment. They did not think that animal was taking away their sins. They knew it had no power to do that. It's a freaking animal, right? It's not going to do that. They knew God alone would do that. And so that was their mentality. That's what they were thinking. Today, these offerings are still prayed by us and they're recalled by us in the Lord's Prayer. When we ask God to forgive us and to pardon us and our misdeeds, we are connecting to that same technology. Another one of the sacrifices brought was the Thanksgiving offering. It's known as the Todah offering. The sacrifice brought by those who wish to express their appreciation to God. And it can be employed in our prayers as well, such as, uh, for instance, when we pray the Psalms. It's a very good idea to pray the Psalms. They prayed the Psalms in the temple, in the temple services. Psalm 100, in fact, is called Mizmor Le Todah, the Psalm of Thanksgiving, meaning the Psalm you prayed when you did the Thanksgiving offering in the temple. This is the Psalm, this is the prayer, this is the liturgy that they used which means you can still use those words when you want to express thanksgiving. The psalm uh, in traditional Judaism is recited every single day. And it's supposed to be recited every single day in the morning at the time when the morning sacrifice would be brought forward. And the, uh, the thanksgiving offering was also a special type of the peace offering, the shalomim offering brought by those who wish to express their love, praise, and appreciation for God. So much of prayer today consists of praise, right? Doesn't it? And appreciation for God and for the beautiful world he created. And when we're doing that, we're connecting to the same technology of what they thought was happening when they brought a Todah offering into the tabernacle. 
It's the same thing we think is happening when we lift up our voices in praise. We know we're not just lifting up our voices, and we know it isn't our voices or just our thoughts that's doing it. We realize it's connecting us to something beyond us. That's what they thought. The, the Todah offering facilitated that process for them. Furthermore, this tradition of prayer connecting with sacrifices uh, and with the peace offering, uh, it created peace between the people and God, and it drew an influx of peace into the world. And the offering was consumed by the priests, by the person bringing it, and by God himself. So think about that. Think about the spiritual nature of that, the psychological, the symbolic, the mystical level of that. And then think, does the church have something where there's liturgical prayers centered around it, where the clergy, the people, and God all share a meal together? Straight out of the tabernacle. You have the sacrificial system in your worship services today when you have clergy, people, and God partaking of a meal that's on the altar, knowing that that's bringing down an influx of God's good gifts into this world. It's the same technology. But it's Bobby Knight versus whoever the latest, greatest players coach is. Some have argued the sacrificial offerings were primitive because they were mere attempts to bribe a deity. But again, the very word for Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew for sacrifice, korban, as it's up there, disproves this argument as it's derived from the verb meaning to bring or to draw near. They were not an attempt to appease God. God was not appeased by fine flour being consumed on a fire like what does the maker of the universe need with that right it wasn't a bribe <laughs> you can't bribe god they knew they couldn't bribe god they didn't think they were bribing god instead they thought they were being brought near to god so any more than when we pray and when we pray our prayer request do we think we're bribing god or when we decide we're going to live a sanctified life? Do we think by living that sanctified life, we're bribing God into having our life go a certain way? Ideally, no, we don't think that, right? And we shouldn't think that. And if someone does, we would correct them. They didn't think the sacrificial system was appeasing God. They thought it was bringing them near to God. And it was bringing them near in their way. Significantly, there's... Three characteristics with sacrifices. Sometimes it's called submission, sacrifice, and offering. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov uh, uses uh, a language that I prefer a little bit better, and that's submission, separation, and sweetening. And those are the processes of sacrifice that still find their way in our prayer life today. In the case of the tabernacle, sacrifices Submission involves an individual's acceptance of his or her existential relationship with the Creator and submission to God's guidelines on how to approach and come close to God. The separation stage comes in the form of the expenditure of time, money, and effort involved in bringing the sacrifice. And the sweetening stage manifests itself 
and the spiritual sweetness experienced when one freely desires to please God by giving himself or herself over to God. The same dynamic occurs in contemporary prayer. A great amount of submission is required of an individual to commit to really praying multiple times a day on an ongoing basis in a real, consistent, diligent, passionate, consuming prayer life. That's hard. That is very hard. Time and effort must be sacrificed and enormous discipline extended to follow through on the commitment. In submitting and making these sacrifices, life is then sweetened by the giving of oneself over to prayer. Indeed, despite the fact that animal sacrifices are no longer offered, their fundamental underlying principles, their spiritual technology, their animating philosophy are fully integrated into normative, fervent, liturgical prayer. So more for you to think about with why the sacrifices are still relevant to us today. And it isn't as simple as Jesus died on the cross and freed us from them. It's not that at all. That comes from a complete misunderstanding of what a commandment is and what a sacrifice is. But it fits so nice and neat into a very, very tiny theological box that we like to keep very tightly browned up and don't ever open it. Because we got everything stuffed in there really nice. But let's open it, and let's see it's not that little of a box. In fact, it's never going to fit in a box. Being mindful of Zav. So Leviticus chapter 8, verse 23. Usually people ask me about this verse when they read through this portion. And Moses took some of its, it's meaning the ram of the previous verses. It's a ram that's being offered. And took some of its, the ram's blood, and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Right? And then he goes on, if you read on, he does it for each of Aaron's sons as well. So part of their ordination, part of their initiation, was there was a, a sacrifice offered, and then the blood of the sacrifice was placed on the right ear, the right hand, and the right foot. So the obvious question is always, why? Right? Because hopefully you intuitively know that can't be random. That's got to mean something, right? No matter what level you interpret the Bible and how much you want to avoid any mysticism or any ism, you got to know that means something. What does it mean? We'll talk a little bit about it as we try to bring it in to ourselves. So we are commanded in the book of Exodus, as well as the Apostle Peter echoes it in his epistle. We are commanded to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. Right? All of us. Not just the Levites. Right? All of us are to be part of kingdom a nation of priests which means from the biblical perspective there's a priest in each one of us 
We are commanded to be this nation of priests to take responsibility for the holiness of our world, to be healers and when necessary to stand between life and death, bridging the finite and the infinite. The portion Zav addresses the priest in us and its blessing is in calling that priest forward. So as we're reading through Leviticus, what we need to be thinking about is stimulating that priest within us, awakening that priest within us. And Zav begins with the instruction for keeping a perpetual fire burning for the altar. Without the constancy of this fire, all our sacrifices, our prayer, our holy work would cease. This fire on the altar of our hearts is the prerequisite for all of our spiritual practice. So Zav directs us in the tending of that innermost fire. If the fire should go out, our priesthood fails and it becomes worthless. So we have to constantly tend the spiritual fire within us. We have to make sure the spiritual fire within us does not go dormant. If our spirituality cools, then our priesthood cools and eventually dies. Zav ends with this ceremony that consecrates our priesthood and sends us out into our holy work. Remember, little kids begin learning how to read in Leviticus. They study Leviticus before any other book. Jesus, as a child, studied Leviticus before he studied any other book of the Bible. Why? Because it's all about holiness. It's all about interacting the priest within us to live a holy life. And during this ceremony, we are blessed with the blood of the ram of consecration on the ear, the hand, and the foot. On the ear, so that we might hear and respond to the cry of the oppressed, and to the still, small voice within our own heart. It's to listen. Oh, but it's the right ear. Right is kessed, loving kindness. Always err on the side of kessed. Always be heavy on the side of kessed. Very Jesus' teaching. Then on the hand, that we might dedicate ourselves to doing justice and to making beauty. And then think about your hands. Think about most sins. Somewhere along the line, your hands are involved. Whether it's clicky-clicky, clicky-clicky, turn, whatever. Your hand got involved in it. To be holy, your hands need to be holy. Your right hand, your hand of kesed, needs to be especially holy. And on the foot, so that we might walk, halakha, that we might walk carefully and deliberately on the path of our pilgrimage and have a heavy limp on the right side. Zav asks us to enter within and inspect the condition of the innermost fire upon the altar of the heart. We are challenged to look at our lives and ask serious and probing questions about what supports that fire as well as what puts it out. So this week, as you're reading this portion, you think about the altar that is your heart and your tabernacle. What keeps it aflame? What douses it? The fire itself can speak to me, and it can say, you must provide the spark 
Be with the people who spark your creativity and your enthusiasm. Find yourself a real teacher. Keep reading and keep learning. Seek out places of beauty. Let yourself be challenged by difficult and interesting projects. Make music and colorful art. Travel to exotic places. Find reasons to celebrate. But keep the fire going. And seeing that I'm listening, the fire grows bolder and says, and I need space to burn. I need air, spacious air and oxygen. The breath of life, the spirit, the wind, open spaces. The fire says, if you schedule every minute of your day, if you fill all the silence with words, if you clutter up your life with so much stuff, How can you expect me to have enough space and enough oxygen and enough air to burn? And then the fire opens up even more to me and speaks directly and says, where is my space? Where is the air? How are you letting me breathe? To which I respond directly, well, what do you need as fuel What keeps you burning other than just space? The fire flickers brightly at my question and whispers, the love that you give and the love that you receive, that is my fuel. For love is as fierce as death and no river can sweep it away. Solomon, Song of Songs, chapter 8. One more thing, the fire says, flashing righteously. You have to remove the dead ashes every single day. I cannot burn clean and pure if the refuse of the past is allowed to accumulate within you. Each morning, you as the priest of the tabernacle must remove that which is old and done in ash. Amen. We will close there this evening. A reminder, we will not meet next week or the week after, but we will pick it up uh, soon after that. I'll try to get an email with all that details, but do be alert to that. Uh, Let's close with the blessing for the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Go in peace. Shalom, shalom.